Scottish Rugby Podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary. You're listening to the Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. I'm Stuart McFarlane. And I'm Dale Clancy. And this week we have an exclusive interview with Doddy Weir, as well as some time with Scotland legend Andy Irvin. Tackling Scottish Rugby. Well, Dale, it's been another very interesting week in the world of rugby and you look at Scotland, as we always do, in isolation. Mixed fortunes again for the two sides that are in Europe, Edinburgh and Glasgow, in the professional game. It's been a rotten few days for Glasgow when you consider that they lose out to Exeter by 42 points to nil in their opening European Cup match. They then discover Exeter players have contracted covid that then has a knock-on effect for Glasgow's next European fixture, which, after a ruling and a committee meeting, they're then forced, I suppose you could say, to accept a 28-0 defeat to Leon, coupled with some of their own staff and players coming down with the COVID-19 virus. It's been a, a wretched few days for the Scotstone side. Yeah, it's interesting you say, but look at Scotland in isolation and the Glasgow boys are obviously having to adhere to all the self-isolation for a couple of weeks. You know, I listen to a lot about the ongoings with the Premiership in, in terms of football. And, um, you know, Newcastle have suffered a lot of players to contract COVID and the knocking effect that it has to their club. But it's, it's part and parcel of professional sport. It's probably one of the mainstays that is kind of maintained relatively. Not The games are still the same. The only thing's that the crowd's not there. So these things are going to happen. And obviously the news that there's a new strain, which is a little bit more contagious, then it's difficult and challenging times. And the only thing is, I think a 28-0 loss in Glasgow's recent form is probably a, a tighter game than I expected. But it's disappointing for for them but I think it's you know overall you do hope that they're all healthy and they're all okay and the players that have contracted it do recover because I know there's a, a couple of long Covid issues with a couple of Newcastle players so I hope they'll get through it and they can start to then prepare again for the, the games that are coming up now, Of course Glasgow and Edinburgh have been regular talking points in our type 5 section that we start each podcast with Edinburgh and Glasgow both had positive results over the last eight or nine weeks. Edinburgh certainly their most recent outing down in Manchester and the suburbs to take on sale, coming away with a win on the road, that certainly has boosted their hopes in Europe, no question about that. Yeah, definitely, and I, th- I think it's one of those things that we touched on a few weeks ago, explaining that when the international players come back, what a different beast the professional teams are. Obviously we've not really had much of a chance to see Glasgow because really, Exeter is not a fair reflection on where they are. Exeter are playing some phenomenal rugby at the moment, so you know Edinburgh, to go down there and it was a more of a comeback victory as well, you you know, it's a really good result for Edinburgh and shows that when they do get their professional players back into the fold, what an impact they can have. Now, here's a question for you. Who do you expect to wear the 10 jersey for Glasgow Warriors next season? There's a few names in the mix. <sighs> I know. Obviously, the news this week that they're obviously in some serious talks. A lot of the drums are getting are banged about about Duncan Weir coming back to Scotstown to play, which... He's, I believe he's about 29 year old A good experienced player Who's got some international and premiership experience Coming back to try and control that backline I think it's, it's, it's perhaps a good move But obviously there's a chat about Ben Healy coming over as well You would imagine that there's going to be some sort of development And movement in that 10 position But I, I don't know There's been a lot of different moving of players Leaving our professional teams And then potentially coming into the professional teams But I think that Duncan Weir 
he would be a good addition. But there's a lot of there's a lot of chat with other Premiership teams that are wanting him as well. So Glasgow suppose a Hugh Jones is going to be going to London Irish as well, I believe. So you know there's a lot of little intricacies with the professional teams, whether it's financial, whether it's culture. I don't know what it is, but obviously getting somebody back like Duncan Weir with the, the kind of status he's held him with other players and certainly the fans, mostly because of his hair. He'd be a nice character to have back at back at Scotstown. Yeah, man has outstanding hair at the moment. Certainly, that is true. I think we're we are expecting a lot of movement. As you say, some of that may be the unwillingness to accept a new contract from the club that they're, they're currently with. It may be aspirational. Uh, it, it may be that they simply want a change of scene at this stage. So it's one to, to keep an eye on because I think it will be a very sort of fluid situation with a lot of players. Of course, another example of that is is Jamie Batty moving to Bath. Again, that, that was one that uh, made the headlines just a, a couple of days ago. He's been a feature within Edinburgh. He's not been a consistent performer because of the success of the Edinburgh front three, but he's always performed well when he's been called upon. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think looking back, when he'd moved, I believe, from Stirling to Melrose, but I remember watching him for Melrose for a few years and thought he was a terrific player. Obviously got his professional contract at Glasgow, done well. I remember the autumn test for Scotland a few years ago where they absolutely hammered Australia. He was in the squad and coming on and putting in really good performances in that series. And he's obviously had international experience and he wants to try and, and leave to go and get some more first-team action. He wants to be playing regularly to try and push his cause for international rugby and Again, it was one of those things, I think he moved from Glasgow to Edinburgh to get that first-team action, but it just happens that at the same time as he's moved, as luck would have it and as professional sports happens, the players that are there have really, really improved and you'd say that front, the front row especially for Edinburgh is one of their strongest areas, so opportunities are, are quite few and far between for Jamie Batty just now, so go down and look what it's done to some players. Look at, like, our aforementioned Duncan Weir he wasn't getting a lot of rugby you know he got shipped off to Edinburgh goes down south and look what's happened to him he's playing some really really good rugby back in the international fold so maybe that could happen to somebody like Jamie Batty and that's only going to help the Scottish cause as well because then we would have really competitive front rows and depth as we've been speaking about for week after week we would get a little bit more depth in that front row Just to finish off the the Type 5 topics this week, Dale, we'll look ahead then to the 23rd of July 2021, which I know is a a tall order and a big ask, but that is, of course, the the day of the opening ceremony of the now rescheduled Tokyo Olympics. And we understand as well that within the Olympic programme, there's going to be another GB7 side. And you think back four years to the success of somebody like Mark Robertson winning a a silver medal, that's going to be a, a great experience but there's so much uncertainty over whether the games are going to look anything like they would normally do in a period of non-COVID virus. Uh, you barely know what's going to happen three weeks in advance, four weeks in advance, so to look ahead to an Olympics, obviously a promising thing to look forward to, but it, it might never really be in the guys that we know modern Olympics to be. But obviously in the news, there's going to be a GB7s team, which I think, again, the silver medal with the likes of Mark Robertson. And so hopefully that the Scottish guys can get a little bit of... Uh, you know, a little bit of a say in that team and we get good representation I know we've got some really good players in the circuit so you would hope they can put their hand up but between, certainly England and Scotland there's a real seriousness in the Sevens programme Wales in that as well who are starting to take it a little bit more serious so you could have a really competitive squad you just don't know how it's going to look it might be the fact that they might get a really good run at it and they might get loads of good preparation in beforehand because of the nature of 
professional sport at the moment but again you don't know but I know Jim Mallander he said in the press that after this that obviously Scotland are going to revert back to old and they'll concentrate in their own sevens which is promising I think from especially the conversation we had with Colin Gregor a few weeks back and the fact that Scottish rugby are obviously taking the sevens seriously and looking at it as a platform either develop sevens players or develop players to progress into the professional game and international rugby so it's nice to see that there's at least some words in black and white for what it's worth because things can change but certainly there's words in black and white to say that they're going to concentrate after the Olympics next year on the Scottish cause for, for sevens which is, is really promising. And I think encouraging as well for the organisers of the Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games I and mean, Scotland has been intrinsically linked with the Games right back to Hamilton 1930 when it had obviously emerged as the British Empire Games over in Canada but for a, a Scottish side to have supported the Rugby Sevens since 2002, I think that continuation is is very important indeed. And I know that, that having spoken to the players and Colin being one of them, that particularly uh, took to the field at Ibrox, how much they enjoyed that experience when Glasgow hosted the Games. So to have the Games back in the UK again, and it's certainly at a time where you would hope that it's something returning to more like the norm, more like what we're used to, when you consider that's over 18 months away. You hope it, it is a good experience for everybody involved. Yeah, definitely. And, and the Sevens is a great atmosphere. You look at the, the World Series with places like the Wellington and Hong Kong, like the atmosphere is, it looks terrific. I'd love to go to it in a foreign country, but obviously... For Scotland especially, and, and you know, we're in the borders originally, so we love our sevens, absolutely love our sevens. It's it's such a good spectacle and it's so easy to get engaged with for spectators and squads alike. So hopefully we can look forward to that for the Cobby Games, but we'll, we'll see what happens with the Olympics with the, the GB sevens. That's our Tackling Scottish Rugby podcast tight five topics for this week. The Tackling Scottish Rugby podcast. Now coming up a very special interview, an exclusive interview with Doddy Weir and we were never going to turn down the invitation to catch up with Doddy. So we sent our reporter Ali McGilvery along to Doddy's farm. Tackling Scottish Rugby. How are you spending Christmas this year? Well, I think that question will be uh, seemed to a lot of people. I don't really know what's happening. I don't know what we're going to be allowed to do. We've got to watch what's going on with the COVID. Obviously, myself in quite a vulnerable position. But my good lady's family's done. So if we can, we'll be spending it with her and the family. I do enjoy Christmas. I think it's a great time to reflect on what's going on. Family gathering, good social identity, and I prefer it much better than New Year. Because Christmas to me is probably at like a, a week-long event, if you could say. Got a couple of days to build up, then the big one of Christmas Day, and then Boxing Day used to be pretty mental when the old days with uh, the Gallimero's rugby matches. Yes. So it's a lovely, lovely, lovely time of year. And have you got a wish list then for what you'd like for Christmas this year? Well, I, I think my wish list is probably surpassed in some way because I got diagnosed in 2016, just before Christmas, and didn't really think that I would be still here in some ways. So the Christmas thereafter, I thought was quite a major celebration. So my kids, bless them, pretty much got everything they wanted on the list. And they're not so happy now because I'm still living. 
still here for Christmas is down and with that they don't get as spoiled as what they did back there in 2016. So my wish list basically is trying to see another Christmas if I can. I've been very lucky so far to see quite a number which makes me smile a little bit. You've been an inspiration to many people Doddy. Just what, tell us a bit about the past year in terms of the work of the foundation and tough time with Covid. It has been, yeah. I think Covid's affected a lot of charities and ourselves, one of them as well, because we're a lot of big functions, small functions that have not been able to go ahead. And ultimately, with that, it's had a bit of bearing on the on the spend and the money that we've generated. But we we've been quite lucky. I've quite enjoyed it. It's allowed me to have good time with my family. Although I don't think they've uh, enjoyed me being around as often as I have been. So with that, yeah, the foundation has been absolutely amazing. It gives me a kind of focus of where and what we're doing. And I believe today we've been able to spend just under £6 million into research to try and find a cure for MND and £1 million into helping people with MND, so it's quite special. So everyone out there who supported and the generosity is unbelievable. Thank you very much. It's making a big difference to try and find a stoppage or a cure to MND. The figures you're rattling off there, Doddy, about the, the foundation, did you ever expect it to be so successful when you started? Oh, no way, Ali, not, definitely not. Ironically, we've only been going three years and we've probably been shut down for six to eight months. So where we've been and what we've done is truly amazing. But on top of all that as well, we've got a scientific advisory board. So we've brought together the top 12 or so professors in the UK. So they meet once every six months and that's been quite unique in some ways to allow them to talk together because beforehand it was very individual i'm doing this i'm doing that and not speaking together so collaborative we brought them together and now i think that's making a big difference into the stretch to try and find a cure or a stoppage we managed to get a vaccine we think for covid so there's, <laughs> there's hope there is hope, uh, and I think that's why this year's been a great year and a lot of celebration. And again, why Christmas will be a great time, because the first time ever... The MND story is really that it's a muscle-wasting disease, so eventually you can't walk, your muscles and your legs disappear, your arms... You know, maybe you see a little bit of my speech is going, people unable to swallow, unable to breathe, so it's... A total lockdown of the body is quite brutal, but not only for the patient, but for the whole family in a lot of of ways. We got an email the other day from a family whose husband has MND and has had MND for 10 years, and he's unable to breathe, so he's on oxygen, unable to eat, so he's got a feeding tube into his tummy. He's that unwell in some ways that his good lady has to look after him 24-7. She's unable to even have time away from him to put out the washing because there's no alarm systems. He can't show, he can't move if someone happens. 
So she's got to be there 24 7. So that brutality, that devastation, not only for the patient, but for the carers, the wives, the family, friends. And with that, there is no cure, terminal issue, and there's been very little hitting the table, if nothing, forever. But this year, there's been a number of trials that have come on board, albeit the COVID kind of stopped them a little bit, but they've started again. So that, as you mentioned, gives hope. And that's the only drug that MD people have at the moment, is this hope. And hope is a great thing. And with that, gives us a reason to try and challenge our life, to try and stay alive and have the hope. How do you think your rugby past has helped you in, in, in this fight that you're facing now? Well, I think, I think your crime has been everything in some ways because ever since I got diagnosed with MD, I got given the ticket, don't know why, but it happened. So you've got two options, one to embrace it and fight it, another to sit back and let it affect you. So, funny enough, through the rugby, it's, it's brought the gloves out and said, right, we're going to give you a fight. So from day one, I've tried every day to not let it affect me. So every day we've got a little fight with M&D. And that gives me a reason to get up, a goal to get up to say, for example, getting upstairs to bed, people might think it's quite easy, but for people with M&D, it's a big thing. So four years down the line, I'm still doing that. Going to go to the toilet, I can still do that. So M&D, get out of the way, I'm still functioning. But with that though, it might have won a couple of battles. And in doing that, I can't really dress anymore. I can get my trousers off, but I can't get them on, which can be quite embarrassing. I've got to be fed now, which puts a lot of ownership on my family, who have been absolutely fantastic, especially my good lady. And shoveling and shaving, I can't do that now, but I can still walk into the show. So I feel it's a goal to me walking out to speak to you. I can still do that today, so I'm still winning the battle, I think, at the moment, which is quite exciting. So you, you certainly are, Dodi. And, and as I say, this hopefully will galvanise everyone, give you a kind of renewed push for the new year as well and to take the, the foundation forward. We're asking about Christmas, but have you <laughs> set yourself any New Year's resolutions? I think we're, with myself and maybe I'm maybe still here and, focusing as you set yourself certain goals. And this year has been quite a lot of goals, as you mentioned with the foundation, we've been able to fund a number of trials and that would not have happened without the generosity of the public. So thank you so much for that. But also personally, it was my 50th birthday. So I had the goal to try and reach that, which initially four years ago, I never thought would happen. So. We've done that. My, my wife was 50 as well in October. And then every year we try and reach a goal as, <laughs> as Christmas, because I just love Christmas. Well, what it is, what it's about, the family time, because when you get hit with MD, your priorities maybe change because people maybe think about work, living in this. But when you're hit with a terminal illness, you've got to reevaluate your life sit back because I was one of them quite fit, used to be a professional sportsman, working all the hours of the day to try and 
pay off the, the mortgage and the farm and one thing and another. So when you're retiring age, you can sit back and enjoy it, not realizing one minute could devastate your life. And with that, you get this terminal issue to say your life's going to be a little bit short unless you try and sort it out. So with that, he's brought in the family aspect, which has been truly amazing. So Christmas is certainly a celebration. We're going to enjoy that. I think the New Year resolution have to be in that we, we've got to kind of work hard to try and get a cure, which could be difficult for MED, but if not, it's certainly a stoppage. Because once you get diagnosed, if you can stop it where you are, it's not the end of the world. And with that, enjoy life. Enjoy what you're here for. Enjoy the family. You just don't know what's around the corner. As you say, I've been very lucky because the average life expectancy was M&D is two years. So I've kind of doubled that. So I feel very fortunate that I've enjoyed life for some four years now with the banner of M&D and hopefully that will keep on going to do that. Finally, how can people help you? People listening to this, how can they help you in the foundation? Well, I think, first of all, I would like to say thank you to everyone for their kind support and generosity. But my advice would be to really embrace Christmas, New Year for what it is with your family because you just don't know what's around the corner. And with that, I always have this theme and live life. And I think with that, you've got to do that. But if you've got any spare time or cash, if you go to our foundation, my name's Dolly Foundation. There's a donate page there to try and help not only myself, but others with M&D and families around the UK to try and find a stoppage and to help them as well. But ultimately, my message is have a good Christmas, have a great New Year, enjoy life as well. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. That's Doddy We Are Then talking to our reporter, Ali McGilvery. And of course, back last week, we were talking to Scott Hastings, who himself is the chairman of the My Name's Doddy Foundation. And he started our conversation by telling us how the foundation has tackled the many challenges brought about during 2020. Yeah, you're, you're right. Obviously, having played alongside Doddy, you know, he suffered motor neuron disease. He was diagnosed almost four years ago, actually. And he's done an amazing job, not only to set his own stall out by, you know, he came on the phone to me and he said, I'm looking to you, Scott, for help. And I chair My Name's Doddy Foundation. And the reason he came to me is that I'm actually a patron of MND Scotland and I've been involved with motor neuron disease for a long time and supported other people who've suffered from this extraordinary disease that basically robs you of your life. And my mother-in-law passed away with it, ironically. And I've seen over many years how it affects people. And, And when Doddy phoned me, I was absolutely devastated. And whilst Doddy's suffered for four years, he has the slow progression of the disease. And, you know, another name which is synonymous with motor neuron disease now is Rob Burrow, the rugby league player. Now, he ran on the field of play in a fundraising match earlier on this year, January, February, I think, February, I think it was. He cannot walk unaided now. His speech is gone. And that's the terrible thing about this disease. So in many respects, you know, we've had to do a lot this year because we've relied on our events and our fundraising and our dinners 
and all sorts of manner of, of people getting together for cycles. So we've had to think sort of out the box in many respects and do a lot of activity online. There's been dinners held online. Um, we've had virtual solo rides that have gone on. People have done their own thing. And to a certain extent, as people are reflected on their lives during COVID and during the pandemic, they've seen other people who kind of suffered and they want to help other people. And as human beings, we want to help other people. And we've seen that, the way that people have got around Doddy Weir, because he's now become a very much a, an ambassador for motor neuron disease, in much the same way as Rob Burrow has as well. And of course, just recently, Kevin Sinfield has run seven marathons in seven days. He's raised over two and a half million pounds. So it's extraordinary, I think, the reach of what can be achieved through social media, through television. And Doddy's been a regular contributor to that. And he's helped other people who've been diagnosed with this awful disease to speak openly, to be positive. And, you know, if there's one thing that Doddy Beer has done, he's, he's remained positive. He's such a jovial fellow. And I'm just delighted to be part of it. And a lot of people, you know, one of the things, Stuart, that people have been talking about is concussion. And they're saying, is there any issues between concussion and motor neuron disease? Well, quite frankly, there's not. And also the farming community are concerned about fertilizers being used on agricultural uh, grounds. But also Yusvan de Westes in the South African scrum half, he passed away with motor neuron disease recently and he was there, was there was a story going around that because he was licking his fingers after putting the ball in the scrum did it come from fertilizer the ground well none of that has been proven so at the moment what is doing is he's raising funds for research and we've backed over what six and a bit million pounds worth of medical research and we will do more and there's some exciting stuff coming on board so what we've been able to do is provide the funding the long-term funding for doctors to investigate the reasons that the cells, in one of a better phrase, the cells switch off. Basically, the body closes down. So how do we stop that? How do we reverse it? And how do we ensure that these cells remain active? So, um, you know, hopefully with Doddy being around in 2021 and beyond and, you know, motor neuron disease having a high profile, the rugby community will gather around. But we have to reach further to that. And I think that's where Kevin Sinfield has potentially done that. And, uh, you know, sport will support each other so long may that continue yeah just touching that obviously you've said you've got prior experience with that with your mother and my partner's cousin her husband Stephen Darby has also been diagnosed with MND and runs the, the Darby Rimmer Foundation now it must be quite difficult for somebody in your position to help Doddy in that period because you know and you've got prior experience of what comes after that and then what comes before it because obviously looking back at Rob Burroughs. So how do you manage that? It's obviously, it's a horrible disease and it's very difficult, but sometimes when you're there supporting, you juggle so many emotions. How do you feel and how do you manage your support? Uh, there, there was one particular incident a couple of years ago when Doddy accepting a check with the Project Water Boys, who are a seven-a-side rugby team who play around the world, and through their winnings and participation fees, they've been able to donate to Doddy. So we did that before the Scotland-Italy match. Actually, it was last uh, was it last season. And, uh, no, it was two seasons ago. And Doddy came out the uh, the Fountain Bridge bar and somebody stopped the car and ran over to Doddy and she was in tears. I've just lost my, my dad to motor neuron disease, but you're an absolute inspiration. And we were all crying our eyes out, my wife, Doddy, myself. And it's difficult, you've got these emotions, but, you know, Dolly's also been through that area of anger. What, why have I got this? And, 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 and so, therefore, you just have to manage and then value what you've got within your life. And, and to a certain extent, you know, there's some gallows humour that goes on and 
you know, within our meetings, but there's also an acceptance that, that this disease will rob Doddy more and more of his life. And therefore, we've just got to do as much as we can and live in the moment and get on with it, but also to encourage and put out the positive messages that this, the monies that are being raised are actually going to some very exciting projects. And earlier on this year, we uh, launched a, a drug trial called MND Smart, and it basically it allows us to look at repurposing cancer drugs and can they make an effect and can they have an effect in motor neuron disease. If one drug is not making any progress, we can bring in another drug. Because we've got the seats of learning, the scientists and the professors coming together under our medical advisory board, we've been the catalyst to say to the likes of MND Scotland and MNDA, that's the Motor Neuron Disease Association down south, to say, right guys, what have you been doing for the last 20, 30 years? We now need action. So you, the University of Sheffield, speak to the University of Edinburgh, speak to the University of Oxford and start to collaborate. And that's what's happened. We've had a collaboration. So MND Smart brings a number of seats of learning together. And, and this is just the start of the process. But through our knowledge of playing international team sport, such as rugby, we've been able to bring the best out of the medical profession to say, you've got to work together. You can't work in your silos. And that's been one of the great things about the foundation. We've we've allowed that process because it's come from Doddy and we've encouraged people to just get together and see what can be done. And I suppose the, the sort of proof of the pudding is look what the international community has been able to do with COVID-19. They've accelerated programs. There's been a huge investment into finding a vaccine and they've done it. You know, which is incredible. And a number of researchers that have gone on and a number of um, pharmaceutical companies who are involved, they've worked with the centres of education and they've found a number of options. Well, why can't we do the same with motor neuron disease? Former Scotland and Lions Centre, Scott Hastings, they are the chairman of the My Name Study Foundation. And daily, I have to say, what a work the foundation has done since it was uh, established just a, a couple of years ago now. To put MND in the, the public spotlight, the public consciousness in the way that they have, along with generating and raising so much money, is, is just extraordinary. You know, I remember when it first came out and you seen the, the interview with them down at the Green Yards and you just felt, He's such a big character, and you just felt so sorry for him and sad for, for the situation, and and then all the emotions that come with that. Because, like, especially Doddy, Doddy, I don't think wants you to have pity on him. He's done remarkable amounts of work, and as you say, put it in the forefront of people's minds. And even just looking back last weekend when they're talking about the Sports Personality of the Year, obviously Lewis Hamilton won, but you look in social media and it's Rob Burrows and Kevin Sinfield, and and you know they're saying these people, these sports people, should be the Personality of the Year, and along with that. You've got the Derby Rimmer Foundation from uh, Stephen Darby, who's got MND, ex-football that used to play for uh, Liverpool, Bradford. That's all come on from work Doddy's done. Now, it's not to say that these foundations and the work that these people would have done would not have been done, but the collective work, which has started from the foundation, I feel, that Doddy's done originally, has allowed these other platforms to really strive and push on and put it at the forefront of people's minds and... The public want answers to this, so it fuels research, it fuels awareness. And, you know, and you, you look back, all of that, I would say, is from the initial diagnosis from, from Doddy and the work he's done. And it's all very well saying the work he's done and what he's done for more neuron disease. It's the nature that he goes about in it in. 
You know, it's it's the way that he carries himself. He does it with enthusiasm, positivity, and probably what are the darkest years of his life. And he does it with with such a such an like such an, a a buzz for helping other people because ultimately that's what it's for. I think he's aware that it might not help him, but the work he can put in now to help other people and and families and the way that he carries himself is just remarkable. I think it's. It's amazing to see what he's done, and I don't even know how to try and articulate it anymore. It's just, it's unbelievable the, the work he's put in. Yeah, I think everybody listening to the podcast will uh, express those very same views and, and feelings and, and, and emotions. And you have to say, it is, it's, he looks upon it, I think, as a, a legacy. Uh, he wants to sort of leave his, his mark in tackling the, the condition head on. There's a, a matter of factness about how he approaches things. And as you say, I mean, that that is, it's extraordinary that the strength that, that he shows. And, you know, you, I've thought quite a lot during 2020 about the, the fact he's missing out and has missed out for so much of the year and that sort of face-to-face interaction with a lot of people because of the dangers of being so close to people and his very vulnerable situation. So he, even more than most, has to, to be so, so careful at present. But we certainly wish Doddy, of course, all the best. We wish the Foundation all the best and uh, we wish them well as they continue their phenomenal work in raising awareness of this quite hellish condition and we certainly send our best to everybody who has been affected by it across all sports and all walks of life. Tackling Scottish Rugby. So this particular edition of the Tackling Scottish Rugby podcast, as we approach Christmas, we wanted to ensure it was littered with rugby legends, not just a case of having Dale on the show this <laughs> week. We've heard from Scott Hastings, we've heard from Doddy Weir, and now it's time to hear from a real legend going back to the 1970s when he was in his pomp playing at Golden Acre starring in three Lions tours winning over 50 caps for Scotland he was the record points holder for a time he always has a a smile on his face he's always extremely articulate talking about the game and I was delighted a few days ago to catch up with Andy Irvin and we started by talking about some of those early memories playing for his club and country well, indeed. In fact, when I was still in my last year at school, I uh, became very good pals with a few of the border boys, Jim Henderson and George Elliott, because we played in the Scottish schoolboys together. So I actually played for Melrose Colts in my last year at school to enjoy the Border Sevens. And when I left school in the June, I went down to train with Harriets in the August with the FPs. But Melrose actually asked me to play for the senior team at the Kelso Sevens. And Harriet's, in, in no uncertain terms, said, no, no, you can't do that because if you do that, you'd effectively be cup-tied to Melrose. So I had to sort of give up the opportunity to, to play for Melrose in the Kelso Sevens and then concentrate on, on 15s at Harriet's. And in those days, training always started in the season in first week in August and the first game was always the first Saturday in September. I mean, it was pretty strict. You just weren't allowed to play 15-a-side rugby until the 1st of September. If you had practice games with your own club they had to be very much unofficial and I remember we once had a practice game against Selkirk end of August at Goldnaker but in order to comply with the SRU regulations one of our players played for Selkirk and and one of theirs played for us so it couldn't be seen as a a Selkirk Heriots match I mean in those days it was pretty strict the season started on the 1st of September 
and it ended on the 31st of March. After the 1st of April, it was only sevens. There were the odd 15-a-side match played, but that was only played with special permission from the SRU if you had a, a fixture that had been postponed and it needed to be played in April, you could do so, but only with their official permission. That There were no unofficial games of 15 aside after the end of March. And in fact, in, in many respects, it was much more enjoyable for the players because the season now just goes on far, far too long. I think that was a concern. I remember talking to Bill McLaren back in 95, and he was a little concerned about the introduction of the, the Scottish Cup, particularly for border sides, because he felt that if you had a border league that was active, if you had a competitive league season, as well as a cup tournament, and then the border sevens circuit as well, it made for a, a very long season for a, a lot of players. So I, I can understand the, the sort of regimented season and the need for that to keep it neat and tidy when you had inter-district championship games, as well as players playing internationally. Yeah, I think that's a very fair comment. What you have to remember is when I was playing, you know, I started playing in the 70s, and in those days, the, the game was very, very much amateur and most of the rugby boys they were quite happy for the end of the season. We, we celebrated playing a lot of sevens, although in many respects for the big heavy boys, you know, the front five lads a lot of them didn't play sevens because, you know, they weren't really quick enough. They were built for power rather than speed so their season ended pretty abruptly at the end of March and then what happened is lads went on to play cricket or athletics or golf, you know, you had a complete break from your rugby. And to be honest, it was quite enjoyable because after a hard slog in the season, the bigger lads in particular, they, they needed a bit of a rest. I mean, I do feel sorry for the players now, especially the forwards, when you see the amount of hits that they take and the amount of training they have to do. It must be doing some damage to their bodies. I often talk about Xander Fagerson and the number of minutes of game time that he plays for Glasgow and how he has been very much at the, the forefront of uh, Glasgow Warriors for uh, quite some time now. And you do worry about the sort of long-term effects on Xander Fagerson, for example, as, as one player who the number of professional minutes he's played has been quite incredible. Well, and, indeed, and, and hopefully he's still got a good 10 years or more to go. In fairness, the, the players have to train an awful lot harder now. They get an awful lot more big, big hits, not just in the games, but also in training as well. But then on the plus side, there are two big advantages. The medical support is obviously an awful lot greater. And also they're looking after their bodies a lot better. You, you know, their training methods, their diet and so forth. I remember... We used to go through and, and play games in Glasgow and, and on the way back, the, the bus would stop in a fish and chip shop on, on Great Western Road. And some of the forwards, I won't mention any names, um, <laughs> Ian Milne, but, um, you know, he would often have a fish supper, a white pudding supper and a haggis supper and they'd have all three finished by the time, you know, we got back to Edinburgh. <laughs> whereas, whereas now, I mean, you know, I've been in the last two or three Lions tours and if you look at the, the quality of food that the lads are eating, they really do look after themselves exceptionally well. But they have to because they're professionals and, and that's their job now. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Can you give us an insight into what the 
rugby scene in Edinburgh was like in the early 70s when you were coming through and, and you were obviously a, a, a fixture within the Edinburgh district side and you'd win two district championships either side of the 70s at the start and at the end of the decade. What was it like though within the city playing rugby at that time? Well first and foremost when you left school you tended to join your FP club if you were at school in Edinburgh. There were some open clubs, Edinburgh Wanderers, Muir. Curry were just only in, in infancy. They, they were a wee junior club that came through remarkably well. But most of the lads played for the FP side. And there was a real bond. I mean, Harriet's Watsonians, Harriet Stewart's Melville, these, these were great cup tie events. You, you know, you really looked forward to your matches. You trained on a Tuesday night, you trained on a Thursday night, you played on a Saturday you invariably had a few beers with the lads that you played against on the Saturday night. There was a great camaraderie and fellowship. Although you were knocking 10 bells out of each other in the game, as soon as the game was over, you would always have a few beers and you would usually spend a bit of time with your opposite number in the first instance. So you got to know all your competing clubs really well. And then, of course, the, the better players, when they were selected for Edinburgh, they came together. So you knew your pals from Watsonians or Borough Muir or, or Edinburgh Wanderers or Stuart's Melville, and you formed a good bond with them in the Edinburgh side. And then, of course, when Edinburgh played the South or played Glasgow or the Northern Midlands, it was the same thing. You, you got to, to play against lads from different geographies, different districts, and then you became very pally with them when, when you stepped up into the, the national side. So there was a great fellowship and, and friendship in rugby. The great thing is you literally would knock 10 bells out of each other. But as soon as the game was over, you were best of pals. I mean, I've still got great pals to this day, guys that gave me a good kicking 50 years ago, but we're still talking and we still reminisce over a beer. I mean, only this week I've been speaking to David Leslie, Jim Rennick, sent a text to Finn Calder, who's, who's not very well just now in hospital. Um, you know, we, we do all keep in touch, and it's, and it's a great thing. Well, I'm, I'm going to throw another name your way just now, because it's somebody that I've, I've got to know over the years. He was a very good friend uh, of my father's. It's Pete Gallagher. I grew up in Duns, and, of course, Pete came back in the early 80s to teach at Berwickshire High School before then going on and working with Scottish <laughs> rugby, as you know. But he would often talk about the standard of rugby, of these amateur players and the standard, particularly when you got to that inter-district championship level. Very impressive level that you played at when perhaps it was a physical game in a different way to how it is today. Well, what you've got to remember is that in the amateur game, all the top players, they played for their club the week before they would play an international match as well. Now, I can remember playing for Heriots against Hoyk, and we had four current internationalists on the side. I think Hoyk had six or seven. There was almost half of the Scottish team in that one match when Heriots were playing Hoyk. When Heriots played Gala, Gala always had a good sprinkling of internationals. You know, we played Watsonians, we played Stuart's Melville. There was always, I would say, five or six internationalists on the field for these normal club games. And invariably, you would get a club game. You would get one, sometimes two national selectors, possibly even the coach as well. But the standard of club rugby was really high in the 70s and 80s. 
I mean, the Scottish club teams could live with the very best of them. I remember playing for Heriots against Cardiff, and we beat Cardiff. And I can remember playing a tournament in London in, in the late 70s, and, and we won that tournament. And we beat Stade Toulouse, you, you know, with Jean-Pierre Reeve and these guys in the final. Having said that, that particular day, Heriots had six current internationals in their side. So you just don't get that now. And it's pretty sad, you, you know, that, I mean, obviously the, the top players are now dragged into the professional sides, Edinburgh, Glasgow, and consequently, the, the, the standard of rugby at club level isn't quite the same. Although I have to say, if you look at the players at club level now, a lot of them are probably fitter and bigger than we were in the amateur days. The amount of training that just the average club player does now is amazing compared to when we played. You were talking there about Harriet's success at the end of the 70s, and I mentioned uh, an Edinburgh District Championship success right at the very end of the, the decade. But I want to ask you as well about the significance for Harriet's of winning the, the championship in 79. And you ended the, the run of successive titles that were won by a Hoyke side. How important was that for you as a player, given all that you'd achieved, and for the club? Well, it, it was absolutely enormous. You couldn't underestimate how good Hoyke were in the 70s. I mean, they, they were a fantastic side. If, if they lost any more than two or three games a season, it was a bad season for them. I think Hoyke won it the first five years on the trot. We were the first team to take it from them. And then I think it was Gala that, that had a bit of success. And then Hoyt came back again. And then Kelso had a bit of success in the early 80s. But these were fantastic times because it was an incredibly competitive league. And in fair credit to the SRU at the time, I think of the four UK countries that played in the championship, Scotland was the first to have a recognised official national league and it was hugely successful. I mean, it really was. It was big time. We would sometimes get crowds of three, 4,000 for these club matches and if it was a really big one, I remember the season that we won the championship, our last match of the season was against Borough Muir and it was winner take all because Borough Muir were also in contention. And... I remember Graham Hogg was their captain and the referee took Graham Hogg and I aside 20 minutes before kickoff and said, look, chaps, we've got a problem here. There's a queue over half a mile long trying to get in. Would you guys be willing to delay the kickoff for 20 minutes so that we can get the stadium? And we both agreed. And I remember running out. I couldn't believe it. There were, there were over 5,000 people at a club match and it was a tremendous atmosphere. And at that time as well, you had a, a lot of exposure on television, not only as an international player, but the club game on terrestrial television. And the, again, the Inter-District Championship was something that was so readily accessible to such a wide audience. And it, and it was, it was captured through Rugby Special for, for so many years. So that raised the profile of, of teams and individuals. Well, un undoubtedly, I mean, we were quite lucky at Goldmaker because we would probably get maybe two or three games a season on Rugby Special. And it was very, very professionally done. <laughs> we also had fantastic commentators. I mean, the main commentator was Bill McLaren. Now, Bill was recognised as the best commentator in the world. And, and I don't say that lightly, because I, I can remember playing for the Lions in New Zealand and people would come up to me and say, geez, you must know that chap, Bill McLaren, that, that does the broadcasting. I said, well... Of course I do, yeah, I see Bill four or five times a year. 
And they would say, oh, that must be marvellous, because he was regarded in New Zealand as film star status. You know, his commentaries were worldwide. They they were generally recognised as the best commentator on the planet. And if I'm being honest, they were absolutely right, because Bill was, without doubt, the best that we've ever had. And Bill Johnson wasn't far behind either because Bill had a a great border twang as well. And, you know, for the pair of them to broadcast on on Scottish television and radio was just fantastic. And what was it like for you then once you had retired but wanted, obviously, to keep a not so much a profile in the game, but have an involvement in the game and at various strands of the game. You were a firm fixture as a co-commentator for a number of years. I can remember you appearing on Sports Scene after the 1990 Grand Slam success. Being sort of behind the mic and getting involved in in media work, how did you find that, you know, being on the, the other side? Well, to be honest, it was just great fun. You got a bit of pocket money for doing it, but it was literally buttons. I mean, it was about £100 a commentary or something like that, or, or probably even less than that. But it was just great to keep in touch with the game. And, and I mean, I loved Bill's company. Bill and I did a lot together. We did Lions tours. We did World Cups. And it was just great fun. And it was a great way of keeping in touch with the players as well. I had to retire from broadcasting when I went on to the SRU because, you know, if you were president of the SRU, you also couldn't do the broadcast because you would have to, you know, comment on the players and so forth. And, and that wouldn't really be appropriate. There's, there's obviously a conflict there. But I have to say, I, I really enjoyed my time doing radio and, and a bit of television as well. Going back to your playing days and, and when you very kindly agreed to be interviewed, the first thing I reached for was an international programme from 1982 from Cardiff Arms Park because I'm of the generation and I'm of an age where when I think of Andy Irvin as a player in real time and time that I've lived through, I always go for that game in March in 1982. You seem to always up your game against Wales and that Scottish team for those 80 minutes produced, I would imagine you'd agree with this, one of the the best all-round performances during your time as an international player. Well, yeah, I mean, that that game's very special in my memory for a number of reasons. Um, We hadn't beaten Wales for 20 years at Cardiff and and we not only beat them, but we we gave them a a real hammering and and we scored five fantastic tries. I mean, I can remember Jim Rennick's try from his his own 22. I mean, it, it was just amazing. And in those days... Wales were recognised as a great team for flair and back play and so forth. We completely outplayed them. I mean, it, it was just a great performance. But on the sad note, that, that was my last game for Scotland in the UK. We went on that year over to Australia in the summer. We played a summer tour there and played a couple of games over there. And indeed, we, we won the first test over in Australia. But that game at Cardiff was absolutely amazing. And I do remember we had a hell of a party the night that we beat them. And it was about two in the morning. We were in some bar down in the middle of Cardiff. And this guy came up and said, oh, thank you very much, you lads. It was absolutely wonderful. I really, really enjoyed the match. He says, sadly, I watched it on television. He said, I'd been coming down to Cardiff for 18 years and I'd never seen a victory. And I just stayed at home and watched it in Edinburgh. But at the final whistle, I thought, I'm not going to miss this. So he got in his car and he drove down to Cardiff. And we met him at two o'clock in the morning in Cardiff because he wanted to come down to savour the atmosphere 
having never seen a game live and, and Scotland win. Well, that very gentleman you were talking about there, Roger Baird, who was a guest a few weeks ago, I think he managed to gleam from talking to this chap that he'd said to his wife, I'm going out for a pint of milk. And then he had to phone her at some ungodly hour to say I'm on the outskirts of Wales or something like that. You'll see me in a couple of days. So uh, such was the commitment, though, of supporters at that time. And did you sense that, although it was bittersweet for you in terms of you reaching the end of your international career. Did you sense that Scotland were on the cusp of something very special at that stage? Oh, there's no doubt. And, and in fact, the, the turnaround started about two or three years before that. I don't think we should underestimate the impact that Jim Telfer had on the team because, I mean, obviously he's a world-class coach and he made a huge difference to the whole psyche of the team especially the forward pack. I mean, Jim built a great forward pack together. And we also had a lot of good backs coming through. Roy Laidlaw, John Rutherford, world-class halfbacks. We still had Jim Rennick in his prime. We had Roger Baird coming through. In fact, we had some great players that couldn't even quite get in the team. You know, Peter Dodds was some player. Brucey Hay was still playing pretty well. He, he was at the end of his career, but he was still playing pretty well. We had David Johnson coming through. So we had tremendous pace and a lot of flair. And, you know, the mid-70s, Scotland really struggled. But by the end of the 70s, we were starting to challenge. And in the early 80s, we were a pretty useful team. We gave New Zealand a good run for their money. We got a draw against New Zealand. We beat Australia away from home. The boys won the Grand Slam in, in 1984. So the late 70s, early 80s, it was a pretty special time for Scottish rugby. But an awful lot of it, I think, would be down to Jim Telfer. It wasn't just his coaching, but also, you know, sometimes Scotland had made mistakes in, in selection in the 60s and 70s. Jim Telfer was, was pretty astute at picking a pretty useful side. I mean, I, I can remember chaps like... Finlay Calder was ready to give up in rugby. And it was Jim Telfer said, look, Finlay, you, you've still got a, a bit left in you. I think you should keep going. And, I mean, as he replaced his brother on the side. I think Jim had got almost 40 consecutive caps. It was Finn that took Jim's place and then went on for another four or five years after that. But Telfer had a, a huge impact on, on the side. There's no doubt about it. What about the atmosphere inside Murrayfield in those days? In some ways, very different to what it is now. The ground, obviously, the, the look of the ground was is different, but the atmosphere is, is different these days. I suppose it's, it's more of a, an event, a showpiece occasion. But back then, there was a raw energy and the supporters coming, so many of them from their own clubs, to watch the international game. As a player running out onto to Murrayfield and as a player having to use the back of your heel to create a mound to kick penalty goals and conversions. What was it like being the centre of attention in that sort of atmosphere? Well, Murrayfield was a, a really special ground. Two or three things I would say. Firstly, from a playing point of view, Murrayfield had by far the best turf. And um, you shouldn't underestimate that because uh, Cardiff Arms was a bit of a bog. Uh, Twickenham, the grass was about six or seven inches long because Twickenham was played every week by Harlequins. So it, it got an absolute pelting. Lansdowne Road, the, the grass was always very long. It was soft because, again, the Lansdowne club played on it. The SRU didn't allow 
Edinburgh Wanderers to play in Murrayfield very often, perhaps in September or October. But once you got close to the international season, you weren't allowed to play on it. And indeed, we weren't even allowed to train in Murrayfield. So the, the pitch was in fantastic condition. It was by far the biggest stadium. I can remember playing one game there against Wales in 75. When we arrived at Murrayfield, we wanted to walk onto the pitch just to see the condition of it, because if it was a little bit softer, you would wear slightly longer studs. So we walked onto the pitch, and the whole of the far terracing was full. I mean, it was completely full. And this was an hour before kickoff. And we thought, geez, have we got something wrong here? And we turned round, and the stand was completely empty. Because if you had a ticket for the stand, it was a guaranteed seat so that you knew that you were in there. Whereas on the terracing, it was first come, first serve. And the demand of tickets was so great that the terracing, it was almost completely all red. It was all well supporters. Now, on that occasion, official attendance was 105,000. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. Now, unofficially, a lot of people estimated that it was a good bit more than that. And after that match, they then had to restrict the attendance at Murrayfield, I think, to 85. But that day in 75 was just incredible. I mean, you couldn't believe the noise. When we were on the field, it was very, very difficult to communicate with each other because if John Rutherford had made a good break and I was backing him up and looking for a pass, because he'd made a break and the crowd started to really roar... You could hardly hear each other call for the ball. I mean, it was, it's really hard to believe. You know, the, the stadium now is a fantastic stadium, but it's restricted to 66, 67,000. We were getting 50% more than that. Very pleasant memories about playing in front of huge crowds at Murrayfield. What about then going as a lion and going on three lions tours? And did you find that uh, the, the crowds when you were playing overseas tended to be in any way hostile? Were they quite supportive? Was it a very very much a mix depending on, on where you were at the time? And did any of that really come into play in, in your mind? Well, the first thing I would say is if you look at lions tours now, there's often fifteen or 20,000 followers go over there because flights are, are so cheap and, and so available. When we played, my, my first Lions tour in, in 74, there was a, a touring group of about 100, and that was it. In fact, they were so small that we used to invite them into the parties afterwards, and the vast majority of them were Welsh because they were very, very keen to follow the rugby. It was almost unheard of to see a, a Scottish supporter on, on these Lions tours in, in those days. The South African crowd could be pretty hostile. But in those days, there was always a, a small number of black supporters allowed into the ground, and they would always cheer for the Lions. And we would always make a point of going down and saying hello to the, to the black supporters. And it was a great atmosphere. New Zealand was a bit different. New Zealanders are absolutely passionate in their rugby. And while the hospitality, you know, out with the games was absolutely amazing and fantastic, the actual crowds at the games sometimes could be hostile. Canterbury had the, the, the Lancaster Park and Christchurch. That had a, a, a bit of a reputation, not just for the Lions, but anyone going there. When Auckland or Otago went to play Canterbury, there were some real fireworks in the stand, and, and that spilled over into the Lions tour. But mostly... You've got to remember that the sport was amateur in those days. And although the games were pretty fierce and, and sometimes the crowds could be hostile, 
The atmosphere afterwards was fantastic. You know, we always got a, a really warm reception, whether it be South Africa or New Zealand. It was pretty different from what it is now, but we are talking about, you know, 40 years ago. Well, listen, Andy, I'm going to leave it there, but I'd like to thank you once again. Uh, my pleasure, Stuart. Enjoyed it. The Tackling Scottish Rugby Podcast. Sandy Irvin there, talking to me just a, a couple of days ago. And as I mentioned, Dale, a star of the, the 70s, he retired from international rugby in, in 82. He was aware that the seeds had been sown by that stage for a, a real crack at the, the Grand Slam and the Five Nations Championship. And of course, it did come about two years later. And I, I suppose he'll always feel just maybe a little vexed that he wasn't around as a player at that time to enjoy it. But uh, how he made his mark on the game as a Scottish international fullback. I'm still just glad that I've been cast in the same list as Doddy Weir, Scott Hastings and Andy Irvin. So as ingenuine as it might have been, I'm still taking that from your, your previous intro. So Everybody in Peebles and further afield, Edelston, Enerleithen would agree with me. <laughs> I doubt it. But yeah, you know, he's one of those names that's certainly synonymous with Scottish rugby. When you look at highlights reels, when it's on, you know, when the, the, when the rugby, the Six Nations, as it is now, is on TV, he, he, he features in all these historic uh, highlight reels. He was a, a, a real kind of cornerstone for what was built the years after that and that's coming from somebody who certainly wasn't even around at that time I'm I'm very much aware of what he gave to Scottish rugby in professional sport you're not always there when you're lifting trophies but sometimes you've got to do the hard work before that and he certainly seems like he's been one of those players that um, you know three lines tours is for a Scottish player you know nowadays is unheard of so it's remarkable the achievements he's had in the game and Great of them to join us on the podcast. Now we'll look ahead then, Dale, to the festive period. Of course, we've been denied one of the two 1872 Cup matches during the the festival period. The 27th game is off because of Glasgow's COVID situation. But, uh, of course, there's a match on the the 2nd of January, which we hope uh, will go ahead. Won't have naturally the same atmosphere as a normal festival fixture will. But it will be interesting to see how these two sides compare against each other uh, because they're obviously going into a a new year 2021 with some uncertainty over the future of their their big star names and how they're going to cope during a potential Six Nations Championship when they're going to be down to the bare bones again. It's more of an interesting fixture this year than than anything else because you do have that, that mix of really what's going on in the kind of professional environment just now. So firstly, both teams are really wanting to pick up some wins and put some performances in so it'll be a reasonable indicator as to where they are more so I would say Glasgow than Edinburgh because I think Edinburgh are, are okay I think when they've got all their players there they can they can certainly mix it with the best of them they're maybe not top tier not with the, the likes of the Leinsters of this world but they, they certainly can give teams a game when they've got their full complement and I think Glasgow need that bit of confidence being an Arsenal fan I know what succession of defeats can do to your confidence so it's um, yeah it'll be interesting to see but on, on top of that you were mentioning the players looking to go away and do you know like this is the time that the players should be performing like Sir Hugh Jones obviously he turned down a big move to, to Leicester a few years ago for big money and supposedly now he's going to have to go down to London Irish he's missed out on perhaps a big move but if he's if he's trying to manufacture a move away which some of these players might be this is when they should be performing this is when they should be putting themselves in the shop window and you feel that it should make the games a little bit better So, but overall I think the biggest point from the festive period fixtures will be 
to see where they both are because I've got a funny feeling that they're always niggly games they never really go to form either over the last few years like Glasgow were the superior team for a while and Edinburgh would always like sneak a few wins so it's going to be interesting to see what the outcome is but you you know you'd, you'd have to side with Edinburgh just now in terms of the way that the, the last few games and the last few months have went in terms of the form of both the teams No absolutely indeed a nice way to round off this particular edition of the, the Tackling Scottish Rugby podcast we will be back in 2021 with a, a special looking ahead to the Six Nations Championship and, uh, of course, looking at the situation currently facing Scotland's women on certain times in terms of how many fixtures they need to play and who they will play in the early part of 2021. All that to look forward to as we grin and bear it and try and get through these very difficult times but uh, it's been great catching up with you each week to chew the fat over some of the most pressing issues in the domestic and international game around Scotland and hopefully Dale sooner rather than later we'll be able to get back to the grassroots game as well and that will be part of a thousand pub conversations around the country sooner rather than later he's hoping yeah definitely it's been nice being able to do this obviously it's not kind of transpired the way that we initially planned with looking at all levels of rugby but that is just the nature of the world that we live in at the moment but it's been a nice thing to be able to catch up with you and speak about rugby again and just get a little bit of uh, you know normality back in your life so it's although we're doing it <laughs> virtually but it's uh, yeah it's been it's been really good and really enjoyed these last nine episodes we've got one more to go but I wish you all the best for the, the festive season it's been a uh, very very nice end of the year to catch up with you and likewise and I have to say that uh, just uh, don't overdo it with the turkey. Uh, enjoy yourself. And most of all, and to everybody listening, stay safe. You've been listening to the Tackling Scottish Rugby podcast. I'm Stuart McFarlane. And I'm Dale Clancy. Take care. Oh, he's been tackled just shot of the line. The Tackling Scottish Rugby podcast with Stuart McFarlane and Dale Clancy. That's extraordinary.